Well, I'm glad you guys are here today. I'm Zach, one of the pastors. If you're new, we want to say welcome and we want to get to know you. Um, we are starting something new today, and that's our annual vision series. So once a year, we try to remind ourselves, who are we as a church? Who are we together? And what do we orbit around? And so our mission statement is that we desire to be a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. And that's summarized, even easier to remember, gospel community mission. And so today we're going to focus on the gospel. Next week we're going to focus on what does it mean to be a community. And, and, and in three weeks, or in two weeks, what does it mean to be on mission? What does that mean? What does it look like? And so today uh, I'm going to flesh out what it means to be those that love and cherish the gospel. And to help us do that, I've kind of gotten into the style of doing some book giveaways, right? Kind of fun, kind of exciting, keep you on your toes. I might just chuck them out there and you don't get hit in the face. But let's make this a little more fun because it's the second service. The first service is kind of lame sometimes because they're just like pulled out of bed. But you guys are fun, right? You've been awake for a while. So let's see. Um, anybody have a birthday today? Anybody? Okay, who's got a birthday that's close? Anybody within a week? How many days, Pete? Two days? Anybody beat two days? Your brother. Is your brother here? All right, Scott, you get to be my runner. Okay, so come on. Uh, Pete gets the book. This is um, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Love Tim Keller. Love this book about the gospel. Give it up for Scott, the runner here. And Pete's back there in the corner. Pete, wave your hand. There he is. All right, let's see. Um, who, who drove the farthest to get here today? How far did you drive? Uh, 35 miles. 35 miles. Anybody beat 35? 70. Anybody beat 70? How many miles? How many hours? That would probably be about 100 miles, right? More than, we got more than... Come on, what do we got, John? Let's give it up for 10,000 miles. This is um, God is the Gospel by John Piper, uh, highly recommended, and that goes to Mr. Sweeney back there. He's, uh, where, what country are you in or been working, John? Singapore. So you didn't exactly drive here. We'll just, we'll just go with it. Well, um, I'm so glad you guys are here today. Here's a question I want to ask to kick us off today. Have you ever been the recipient of someone's philanthropy? Have you ever been the recipient of someone's philanthropy? Have you ever been blown away by someone's undeserved generosity towards you? I read a, a, a really cool story online this week about McKinsey and Stephen Schultz, and they were having dinner at a restaurant with incredibly bad service. And most of the customers were complaining about the slow service and the slow delivery of their food. And they noticed that the slow service was due to the fact that this restaurant was just simply understaffed. And their server was dealing with 12 tables at once. So the, 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 this couple, Stephanie and, or Stephen and McKenzie, they had both been servers in the past, and they knew what it was like to be swamped 
and just kind of be buried and have people be grumpy and people that are grumpy don't leave good tips. And so here's what they did. They, they, they left this uh, on theirs. They said, we've been in your shoes. Pay it forward. Smiley face, $100 tip. Isn't that cool? That's philanthropy. That's undeserved generosity. That's, that's simply a gift based on mercy. And, and these are the ideas that we're going to see in our text today from the book of Titus as it pertains to understanding the gospel. Philanthropy, undeserved generosity, a gift based on sheer mercy. So we talk about the gospel a lot. It can be just a term that gets thrown around. I know it gets thrown around a lot here. Gospel this, gospel that, gospel-centered, gospel-whatever, gospel-shaped. And I'm thankful for that. But we do ourselves a grave disservice if that just kind of becomes what Matt Chandler says, kind of a junk drawer term where you just kind of throw everything in this drawer and, and you don't even really know what's in there. But it's just kind of like we just chuck it all in there and call it gospel. Well, what we have to know is really what it means. And the word gospel means good news. Good news, like the news, the 5 o'clock news, the 5.30 news. And what happens on the news? What, what we hear is, what is uh, something is declared about what has happened, and you need to know it. Okay? That's news. And this is good news. Gospel means Good news, something to be declared that happened in the past that, man, you should know about. Okay? That's what the gospel means. And there's many summaries of the gospel in the Bible, but today we're going to look at a summary from Titus chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there, uh, either digital or paper. If you don't have a Bible, we have some paper ones behind this wall, behind the sound booth, and you could even get, get up and grab one right now if you want. Or um, you could download an app on your phone right now. Or it'll also be on the screen. But we encourage you to, to know how to navigate your Bible. So I'll help you with that. Titus is like this much left in the Bible. There's this much before it, and there's this much. So you can kind of estimate as you're looking it up. No shame in using the table of contents either. First, Second Timothy, First, Second Thessalonians, Titus. Titus chapter 3. Starting in verse 3. And here, here's the other thing. The, the, the good news, the gospel, which means good news, that we're going to look at, look at today, only is good against the backdrop of the bad news. And so verse 3 here just lays out the bad news. And we also kind of walked through this in our confession time this morning. But let's read it again and, and contrast this with the good news. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, real quick, this is a diagnostic, if we're honest, of all of us. It's a diagnostic of all of us. All of us can find ourselves somewhere in verse 3, if we're honest. And that's kind of bleak, isn't it? Why? Well, because these things separate us from God. Why? Because he's not any of these things. And we are. 
And, and, and you can understand that God would be unjust to tolerate these things. Example, if somebody hates you and they harm you, and you cry out to God and say, God, can you do something about this? We need justice in this situation. This person hates me, and they've harmed me based on their hatred. How would you feel if God just said, ah, that's no big deal. What are you crying about? We'll just sweep that under the rug. You go, no, this is a big deal. So we all resonate with justice, right? And then that, that sin that's against you needs to be dealt with. So if we're so quick to cry out for justice when we've been harmed, shouldn't we also resonate with justice when we're the one who's done the harming? When we're the ones that have assaulted God in our sin? See, it's easy to want justice when we've been harmed. It's really, really easy to not want justice when we're the ones who are doing the harming. And that's the problem. That's the challenge. Because we just want to diminish. We want to augment and, and raise up how we've been harmed, but we want to diminish when we've done the harming. But the Bible says here that we've all done some harming. We ourselves, it says. See that? But then verse 4 comes along. And you see Paul writes, but. It's like, man, that's a, that's a sweet word that says something else is, is coming that I think is going to be good news, and it is. Look at this. But in light of what I just wrote, right, we're turning a corner here. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So let's break this down. I want us to consider this word loving kindness. And I did some research this week into what that word means. Now, some of you might not know this, but the Bible was not written in English. It was written uh, around 2,000 years ago in Greek, the New Testament at least. And so this word in the Greek is philanthropia. Philanthropia. What does that sound like? that sound familiar at all to an English word? It's where we get our word philanthropist. Philanthropist. And what's a philanthropist? A philanthropist is someone who loves to be generous, someone who loves to give. And what Paul is saying here when he uses the word philanthropia is that God is the ultimate philanthropist. God is the ultimate philanthropist. He loves to give. He, he blows Warren Buffett out of the water. All right? That's what Titus 3, 4 is saying. He loves to be the giver. It's his nature. He loves to bless. He loves to pour himself out. He loves to meet needs. He loves to love. But what is this verse referring to? In what sense is God a philanthropist? Like, does God walk around handing out stacks of hundies? Stacks of cash, is that what he does? Does he, does he help you in, like, by, by giving you the most amazing 401k? Is that what his 
philanthropy looks like? Not exactly. So what's it look like? Well, it it tells us here in the word, what's it say in verse 4? It says, he appeared. But when the goodness and loving kindness, when the goodness and the philanthropy of God our Savior, what? It appeared. So God is a giver, not in that he gives cash, because then we just want to fall down and worship the idol of money. And God is the giver not in that he, he gives really cool, nice cars, because then we'd want to just worship the God of technology, worship technology as a God. God is the giver not in that he gives um, uh, dream vacations, because then we would want to just fall down and worship the false God of comfort, a comfortable life. Not that those things are bad. They're horrible. They're good things, but they make horrible God things. No, God's philanthropy is seen in him giving us that which is the greatest thing in the universe. What's that? Greater than cash, cars, and comfortable life. It's God himself. God loves to be the giver, and he wants to give us the greatest thing in the universe. Isn't that good news? Right? He doesn't want us to just settle for things that never satisfy, ultimately, He wants to give us that which is the greatest, that which can truly satisfy. So what's he do? He appeared. He gives us himself. It's in his appearing. See that flow of thought? Loving kindness looks like something. It looks like his appearing. And and Paul, what he's referring to here as he writes to Titus is that there's a historical reality to the Christian faith. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. That if you can just figure that out, we're going to talk about this in a second, that you just figure it out and you're good. No, it's not a list of rules to follow. It's actually first, primarily, and most importantly, rooted in history, in an appearing, in something that actually happened, like the news Listen to what has happened when you turn on the news. Paul's doing the same thing here. Listen to what has happened. Loving kindness has appeared in history and walked and became one of us, right? To save us. That's what God's philanthropy looks like. He's the giver. He loves to give himself the greatest thing in the universe. Another question. Learn, learn to ask questions of your Bible. It's a great way to learn and to be reflective and slow down and soak and really walk with the Lord and his word. So here's another question. So what did then this appearing accomplish? Well, let's continue reading. When the goodness, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so what happened? He saved us or gave the opportunity to be saved, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. According to his own mercy. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So let's think about this. Most people think that Christianity like all the other religions in the world, 
is simply this. It's what I just said a second ago. Just a list of rules of do's and don'ts to follow. Follow them, you're good. You fail, you're bad. Another way to say it is Christianity is just all about a program of self-improvement. Okay? And, man, our world resonates with self-improvement, do we not? Let me just give you some examples, okay? Self-improvement is a multi-billion dollar industry in our world because we love it. We love it. What do we love? Well, we love the self-help section in the bookstore. If you walk into Barnes & Noble, you'll see a big placard that says self-help and just books upon books upon books. Just do A, B, and C. Dude, you're good. We've got just scads of, 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 of brand new weight loss programs. They're always coming out, right? Over and over again, here's a new method. You want to lose weight? Just do this. You want to lose weight? Just do this. You want to help yourself lose some weight? Just do this. You'll be fine, right? We have over and over again. What about, what about exercise, right? All, all the time, just new programs. If you want to be healthy, just do this. Remember Tybo? Anybody doing the Tybo? Yeah? Huh? What was it Billy Blanks? Is that what his name was? Yep. Uh, how about Jazzercise? Anybody old enough to remember Jazzercise? <laughs> yeah. If you're not old enough, YouTube that baby. It will, it will minister to you. Okay? Uh, you got P90X, Dr. Horton. I hate it, but I love it. Anybody with me? P90X, yeah? Doc Horton, PhD in getting shredded. You got yoga, yoga craze. All these girls on college campus wearing yoga pants. None of them actually do yoga. I don't know what's up with that. You got the yoga craze, right? So we got self-help. We got weight loss. We got, we got exercise. We got motivational speakers. There's, there's people that just make thousands and thousands of dollars every year by just doing a self-help motivational speaker circuit, right? Tony Robbins, you know, former professional athletes, because we want to go and we want to hear, what can I do to make myself better? What can I do to help myself, right? And now, weight loss, exercise, whatever, like, are all those things bad? No, they're not bad. They're not all bad, It might be bad based on our motivation, but here's where it gets really bad. The common denominator with all of those things is this. All you got to do, A, B, and C, and you're good. Just follow the list, and you'll achieve something for yourself, right? Just work, okay? It's all couched in like, oh, it'll be be fine. It's kind of work light, you know? Just do A, B, and C. It'll be fine. It's easy, but it's still work. Work at what I tell you to do, and you can accomplish it. You'll be good to go. Just work a little harder. This is deeply ingrained into our culture. We resonate with it because our human nature loves it. So what happens? We carry this mindset into our relationship with God. Just get to work. But here's the problem. The Bible says that's not how it works. It's exactly the opposite. What does the Bible say? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us. Not 
by you following a three-step plan so you can achieve something. Not by works done by us in righteousness. Become a Christian is not about works or means of displaying that you're savable. A means of showing that like, you're somehow worthy of God's attention. A, a means of demonstrating that you've got it all together so that maybe God will look down from heaven and go, Wow, look at my, look at my guy down there. Look at my gal down there. Man, they're really doing the thing. They, they really got their stuff together. They, they're really following the rules. And well, you know what? I'm pretty impressed with them. So you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow them to enter into my presence in heaven. That's not Christianity. Hear me. That is not Christianity. That's not what the Bible teaches, and everybody thinks that it does. Because we're spring-loaded that way. Just do as many good deeds as you can, and then hopefully you'll tip the scales in your favor by the end of your life. See, that's not Christianity. That's Islam and most other religions in the world. That's how it works. And, and the Bible comes crashing into our experience and says, no, 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 that's not how it works. This text couldn't be any more plain. Salvation is not earned by doing. How does it, it work then? It works by simply looking, resting in, trusting the mercy of God. Where Jesus Christ came to this earth and saw our desperate state. Look at what it says again. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but why? But according to his own mercy. See that? Mercy. So let's talk about this mercy. What does this mercy look like? What does this look like? What's the essence of God's mercy? Well, I think it's this. What's the essence of God's philanthropy? I think it's this. Apart from Jesus, we're enslaved in sin. People, we're enslaved, if you're honest, to so much stuff. Like, we can't just stop doing these things that we're passionate about. We have this gravitational pull to so many things. Maybe it's, I'm addicted to my image. Hello, social media. I'm addicted to money. I'm, I'm so addicted and needy. I'm a slave to people's approval. And that has so many symptoms that, that kind of like just spread out of my life in all these like little different tributaries off the river. We, we, we as a people have a hard time controlling our sensual urges that seem good in the short term, but always fail to deliver in the long term. Just leaves us thirsty and wanting tired, lonely. See, Jesus Christ came to this earth, his appearing around 2,000 years ago to show a ragged and tired bunch that worshiping false gods just ruins us and leads us on a collision course with God's just punishment for failing to worship him as God. And, and Jesus came and he said essentially, your sin is a big deal, and I can't just sweep it under the rug like we talked about, right? Justice has to be served, or God would not be God. But instead of you bearing the brunt of the wrath of God that has, been, has to be poured out on sin, I, Jesus, will bear it myself for you. 
I'm willing to save you. I'm willing to substitute myself on the cross to bear the wrath of God in your place. And all you have to do is trust and treasure me. Cast yourself upon my mercy. Don't don't cast yourself on your attempts to to work your way to heaven. That never works because God rightly demands perfection, perfect holiness. And God's the only one who's able to be perfect. So so here's what you should do. Cast yourself on my mercy like like Titus says. And Jesus says, I laid down my life in your place to satisfy the wrath of God, defeat the curse of sin that is death itself, and show you the true nature of love. Then Jesus said, check this out. My resurrection from the dead as a historical fact proves all that I said and did and proves me to be trustworthy. So the Bible calls us this morning, Jesus calls you this morning to cast yourself on his mercy. Cast yourself on Jesus. Trust and treasure him. Repent of sin and align yourself with Jesus. Not so you can prove that you're savable, but rather in response to the fact that Jesus has paved wide the way to be saved. And once you recognize that and receive it by faith, by trust, by treasuring, your heart melts so that you love him. You desire him. You want to look like him. And this is the essence of the Christian message. Maybe you've never heard this before. This is how Christianity is not all about working for God, but simply receiving God because you see you can never save yourself. But God was willing to save you in his mercy if you would have him. So the question for us this morning is, will you have him? Will you have him? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Consider this story. Let's talk about mercy. Consider this story. Let's say you you work a job on the line at a factory, okay? And it's tedious. It's long hours, and it's loud, and it's dangerous. You can't talk to people, and they won't let let you listen to music on your iPod. And, And to make matters worse, you got a job that isn't that great, but your family situation has taken a turn for the worse, and you're an only child, and your parents were just killed in a car accident. So let's say you're 20 years old, you're an adult orphan now. And this really hard job and the emotional weight of what you've recently been through, not that much support structure in your life, you, you reach a breaking point. You can't take it anymore. And the grief and the pressure are too much, and anger starts to well up in you, and you snap. And you think to yourself, this factory, man, this job, this is a hellhole. And and it would be better if this place didn't exist. And so in your desperation and your anger, you decide to burn the place down. You you leave your your apartment at 2 in the morning. You walk over to the factory, break a window, douse a bunch of gasoline in there, light it on fire, and it doesn't take long for that whole thing to just be burnt to the ground. Well, a few days later, the police show up at your door, and the evidence is pretty 
convincing and, and you're charged with arson. And you show up to your sentence at the courtroom and you plead guilty because it's pretty obvious and you await your sentence. And the sentence that the judge hands down is rather unique. No prison time. All you got to do is pay back the owner the $5 million that it would take to rebuild the factory. $5 million. Now, you know you're just a poor factory worker. You could work 50 hours a week plus overtime and still not earn $5 million to pay this debt. It would be impossible to work that hard. So what are you left with? Well, you're left with despair. You're left with crushing depression and darkness. You're left with suicidal thoughts as you leave the courtroom because you don't know what to do. And your resources are tapped. But as you're leaving the courtroom, you spot the factory owner walking your way. He pulls you aside and he says this. He says, I know what you did. It was horrible. But I want to show you mercy. And I know what you've been through in your life. And I know what it's like to work the line at a factory because I used to do that too when I was your age. I, I, I've entered into your experience. And I felt like I could snap many times myself or I was tempted to. And even though what you did was heinous, I want to pay your debt. I'm going to give you the $5 million myself. In fact, I've already set up the arrangement at the bank. All you got to do is go over and sign for it. And it's done. And check this out. Beyond the money, here's what I would like to so, like to see I want to take this relationship a step further. I'd like to invite you actually into my own family. I know you don't have parents anymore. And you feel lost and isolated. I want, to enter, I want you to enter into my family. I want, to, I want to be your adopted father. And I've also set this up. It's not just the bank. It's just down the hall is a different courtroom. It's the adoption courtroom. And it's all set up. All we have to do is walk down there and sign the adoption papers. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's what mercy looks like. This is how God relates to us. It's all based on his mercy for those who have tried to burn the place down. That's what our sin does. It, it devours and destroys. We all have these destructive tendencies in our lives. And God is the merciful factory owner who's willing to pay our debt. And he's also willing to take you into his family and give you a new identity, give you a new last name that's secure. All you have to do is what? Trust his word. Trust what he said. I'm willing to pay your debt. I'm going to give you the $5 million myself, and I've already set it up at the bank. 
So here's the question. Do you trust that he actually did that? Are you willing to walk down to the bank and sign for it? Are you willing to walk to that different courtroom and sign the adoption papers? Do you trust the factory owner? Or is he just playing some sick joke? Is that what he's doing? Or maybe he's just insane and doesn't know what he's talking about. What do you think? See, the Bible says the factory owner is real. The money's in the bank. The adoption papers are ready to sign. And this is the essence of what it means to become a Christian. Trust what the owner said and walk to the bank. You didn't earn any of that money. You just believe what he said. In light of believing by faith that he's not crazy, he's not lying, I'm, I'm taking that walk down the hall and over to the bank. I trust his word, so I'm willing to act on it. It's no credit of my own. I'm just believing him. So are you willing to see the mercy of God given to you? Are you willing to embrace the mercy of God that's there for the taking to cover your sin, grant you forgiveness apart from anything you could ever work for? Let me close by addressing three different, potentially three different audiences in the room right now. Some of you, for the first time, need to receive the mercy of the factory owner, and his name is Jesus. And and if you're honest, you know that you've been burning the place down. It's clear. Things are not working the way they should be. You know your sin is real. There's no way you can dig out of that hole and you feel it right now. You need a new identity because the one you're living out of is not working. And the factory owner says, I'm willing to pay. Walk to the bank and sign the money over. Are you willing to take that walk, step into the adoption courtroom with me and embrace a new identity? And here's, here's the kicker. Here's where the analogy breaks down. What you need, what we all need, is not $5 million. What we need is Jesus. It's not cash. Jesus is the $5 million. Jesus is the mercy of God, like we read of in Titus. And he will be yours if you're willing to have him. He will pay your debts. He will cover your sin. He will credit forgiveness to your account so that all outstanding debts are paid. Are you willing You can repent of your sin. Just turn from your sin right now and say, Jesus, I love you. I trust you. I need you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that you paid for it, and I want to follow you. You can do that right now. Become a Christian for the first time. If that's you, we'd love to hear about that. Others of you are listening in on this, and you're thinking, you know what? That's a nice story and all. But honestly, I'm not burning the place down. I haven't done anything that's that messed up. I don't, I don't have any debts that I can't afford to pay. I can pay, I can pay my bills just fine. And this story doesn't really apply to me. What do I need mercy for? Well, consider the same factory worker analogy. What, what about the time that, that you slacked off at work for five minutes when you should have been given a faithful effort? What about the time that you had lustful thoughts about that coworker? 
What about the time that, that you gossiped about another coworker because they were so annoying, you turned to a different coworker and you said, man, isn't this guy kind of a loser? Now, those things seem simple and insignificant, right? But to the factory owner, they're very significant. Because being lazy is essentially stealing, and, 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 and lusting makes someone into an object to consume, and so that denigrates the workplace environment. And gossip does the exact same thing. It just tears down the workplace environment because it harms relationships. And, and for the factory owner, there's no insignificant sins. They all matter, and they all mean that we're guilty. And they're all grounds for us being fired. So you might not be an arsonist, but what have you done? The factory owner's standard is perfection. It's not just, are you better than the next guy? It's, are you better than me? I mean, can you, can you, can you hang with me? Because I'm perfect. Anyone who wants to be in my presence has to, have, has to be covered with perfection. So can you hang with that standard? See, you too need mercy. The factory owner knows all about our little sins. And he doesn't grade on a curve. Doesn't mercy sound so much better than trying to pay off these debts? Many of you today have have walked to the bank. You've walked to the adoption courtroom. And you know the money's there. You know that he's faithful. He's delivered on his promises. And it's been joy, absolute joy to see that. But sometimes we forget that our debt has been paid. Sometimes we forget about our new identity. And we want to write some checks above and beyond. Like, like, man, I know you paid my debt, but was it really all the way? I mean, can't I at least do something? Can't I at least write a $10 check? Can I just contribute in some way? I mean, am I really reduced to just pure mercy? And God says, the factory owner says, no, it is pure mercy. Why? Because as the giver, I get the glory. And I know that when I'm seen as glorious, the greatest thing in all the universe, and I allow you to resonate with that and see that and celebrate that, what does it do? It glorifies me because that's rightly what should happen because I'm God. It's not arrogance. It's just the truth. And when you see that, what happens? It satisfies you. So I get the glory as the giver. The giver gets the glory. The philanthropist gets the glory, and that's what God wants. And what do we get? We get to be satisfied because we can get off that treadmill of good deeds where all that's left is you're, you're left sweaty and tired and feeling like you're going to throw up because you never arrived. And God says, you can get off that treadmill. Look to me as the one who will provide. I got it all. And know that I'm glorious. You'll never be an employee again. You've got a new identity as a son or a daughter. So you just have to remind yourself. There's no $10 check you can write. Just celebrate that I'm the giver. And embrace it and take it. And then rejoice and live in light of it. And keep living in light of it. All right? Nothing to pay back, nothing to prove. God gets the glory as the merciful giver, so don't rob him of his glory. Here's the whole point. Jesus is the factory owner, and he's the greatest philanthropist the world has ever seen. Mercy 
seen in being given what we don't deserve, what does it do? It explodes our heart to love Jesus as we cast ourselves upon his mercy to pay our sin debt. And Jesus can be trusted because why? Because he's risen from the dead. And that is what, that is what Christians call the gospel. So we call us all, believer or unbeliever, to believe it and receive it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have empowered us by your spirit to hear today and rejoice. Maybe there's some here who have not. And Lord, we pray that even now you would soften hearts to see the greatness and glory of you, that you are worthy to be trusted and treasured. In Jesus' name, amen.